Welcome to episode 121 of the Professor in the Hack podcast. <laughs> We're supposed to be across the numbers there, but it was a slight hesitation. Uh, Peter Van Onselen, I hope you'll forgive me. Oh, look, I'll forgive you because it's it's only through your knowledge of which episode we're up to each time we do an episode that I realise what episode we're up to. So I'm not, not in a position to criticise. They're profoundly unimportant <laughs> numbers, which episode we're on to. There, there are many more numbers that are coming up. But speaking of numbers, here we are. We're now in our final podcast before the election. People are going to be listening to this, presumably pretty much on their way to the polling stations. We're here on a Thursday morning. We still don't know what Labour's costings are. Yeah, it's an odd one, isn't it? I mean, the first thing to say is that it's not unusual to release costings on the Thursday before the election. It's always a scam, though, isn't it? Yeah, and that, that's my second point. So it's, it's not unusual, but it is something that ruins trust, I think. And, you know, when, particularly when one side does it and not the other. And in this election, it's Labor that's chosen to do that. The Liberals have put out their costings much earlier than that. Now, it's much easier from government to put your costings out earlier. But interestingly, they didn't do that in 2019. They actually waited till the Thursday to put out their costings, as I understand it. So both sides, it's a, it's a pox on both houses when it comes to the late issuing of costings. But from a voter perspective, it has a level of disingenuous about it to some extent. But it also raises questions. I wonder, Hugh, about what the strategy is, because there's obviously some strategy behind waiting till then. And there's some practicality too, particularly in opposition. Because, you know, they do or don't put things in to the parliamentary budget office for costing. They don't put them into Treasury because they don't trust Treasury that it might leak to the government of the day. They have the option of two types of options of putting it into the parliamentary budget office. One, which is an open issuing of your policy to be costed. And when you go on the budget office's website, there are no policies there. So presumably Labor have not done that unless there's something wrong with the website. The other option, which I assume they have done, is they can confidentially put things into the Parliamentary Budget Office for costing, and then it's only when they then release it, as they're slated to do for the Thursday ahead of the poll, that they can then say, here is what the Parliamentary Budget Office have said. Now, that's the practicality behind why you might do it late, because you might only put them in to the Parliamentary Budget Office late, and then it takes them time, obviously, to process the costing itself and then come back to you so that you can calibrate it. But if it's about politics, I wonder, Hugh, what the reasoning is, because it feels like any advantage of not getting hammered for your costings earlier is taken away by the disadvantage of being accused of not having costings right up until the end of an election. And that's the point, isn't it? Because we know already, because it's been well foreshadowed by Labor, that they will show worse deficits than the government has got leading out into the future projected. So it just puts a sharp edge onto what's already sort of wall-to-wall online advertising, mm. saying there's a hole in the labor bucket and that, you know, that they, again, can't be trusted with money. Now, whatever the fundamental merits of that argument, they're going to put in higher numbers for deficits, therefore debt over time, and that will come to a sharp focus in the final hours before the vote. Mm, I feel like they'd be better off just owning that because we're, we're in such a debt-riddled era now, in no small part because of the tripling of the deficit on the coalition's watch, You know whether you think that's for good reason or not. Tripling of the debt, I should say, on the coalition's watch, highest record deficits as a result of the pandemic as well. But because of that new era, politically speaking, of us having huge deficits and ever-largening debt, I would have thought that the, the political cost of putting your costings out early, showing that you might be you know, $5, 10 $20 billion more in debt 
it's chump change these days in in the nature of where the debate's at, I would have thought, versus the perception of being late with your costings and the question marks that, that are surrounding that, you know, the opportunities you point out for the advertising campaign to be structured the way it is. I, I just feel like the lesser of evils is to do it earlier. But, you know, if Labor wins the election and wins comfortably, then, you know, they will not learn that lesson, even if I am right, because they'll have won either because of their strategy or for other factors. And that goes essentially to where you think it is at the moment. The Labour Party people I'm talking to are nervous, but they are, I would say, confident that a Morrison majority government will be gone at this election, and they're confident that they will get power at the worst case, maybe pulling in 74 seats overall and having to do a deal with Bant and Wilkie on the crossbenches to form government. And on the best case scenario, winding up with uh, a number of seats with, with a solid eight in front of it. What's your read? Similar to yours, uh, I find it very hard to see where the seats come from for Scott Morrison to retain his majority. So if that does happen, that will be a real boil over, I think, at the election. Uh, and it will defy the polls. It will defy the pundits. It'll defy the betting markets, it'll defy all of us. Now, he's done that before, of course. He did that in 2019. But I think it would be even more of a miracle this time around than last time for him to retain his majority. I can see a pathway to a coalition minority government, but I think it's narrower than the pathway to a Labor minority government. And where I can't find the seats for a coalition majority to be retained, and it would therefore be a stunning surprise, I can find the seats for a, a slender Labor majority. I just don't know whether they're going to actually get there or not and, and have to therefore form minority. Yeah, it's interesting. The essential poll came in, uh, the published numbers were 51-49. That's really close. If you feed that into the ABC's election swingometer, that still leaves the coalition with 74 seats. And with that, they can cobble together from somewhere. They'll cobble together a majority. Mm. Two caveats to that. One is that it doesn't take into account any other seats that are lost by the coalition independence, teal or, or orange or some other color. And the other thing is, is that I had a chat with Peter Lewis from Essential, and he said that the actual figure they returned was just under 51.5, just over 48. So it's slightly, it's not quite 51.49. So again, it, it still leaves that. But the fact that it's narrowing so much and has, you know, the polls, whether you take news poll or other polls, have been narrowing essentially since the budget was handed down. And we're going to come to this point based on those polls of being extremely close on the day. Yeah, and, and we should just say this, there's every chance that on the day it widens and Labor actually wins more comfortably as per the long-term trend of the polls rather than the sort of narrowing that we're seeing now and the sandbagging that we're assuming will happen seat by seat. It might happen like that. Labor may well do better than any of us expected because maybe we're all gun shy because of 2019. So that's a possibility. But more likely, it seems like it's going to be very close. And if it is very close, I, I find this interesting, Hugh. 76 is the minimum. I mean, in a way, it's 77 because you need a speaker, but 76 does get you there. If you have 76 seats, even if you give up the speaker, you're then tied as a worst case scenario of 75 apiece on the floor of the parliament with the speaker presiding. Okay, so 76 is your minimum for majority government still in the 151 parliament. Now, the Liberal Party, I assume, is capable of getting certainly catter, even though Labor's confident that they can get catter, I, I would assume catter for the Liberals or the coalition. They are also, I think, likely to get sharky. 
Sharky is the one independent, Rebecca Sharky in Mayo in South Australia. I think she's the independent that is comfortably the most likely to support the coalition in minority government. And I would then assume that they can get one Teal independent. Before we get to the Teals, what about Helen Haynes? She votes most of the time with the coalition. Yeah, but I just, I, look, unless they do a rapid about face on the Integrity Commission, I don't think they get Helen Haynes. But they might do that. They might just do a rapid about face, give her her Integrity Commission, then Helen Haynes is on the table. Short of that, though, I think she's with Zali Stegall and, and not willing to support this government. Zali Stegall's all but said that. Unless Josh Frydenberg were leader, she wouldn't consider supporting Scott Morrison. And there's no way they're going to flip to Josh Frydenberg. That's a that's a red herring discussion because the damage that would do to the coalition in other parts of the country having just been elected under a Morrison prime ministership, it's, it's, it's fantasy land. So if they get Catter, if they get Sharkey, and if I assume they just get one of these Teal independents, assuming that one or more are elected, I think they can get one because they're new MPs in a parliament where they're in a traditionally safe Liberal seat. I think they'll need to um, extract things from the Liberal Party to justify why they were elected rather than the Liberal MP uh, and to justify to their supporters, therefore, that they're not just a waste of time and that they've immediately sold out. But I think that that is the lesser of evils for them if they can extract something to back the Liberals than for them to turn on what their traditional electorate would say the moment that they get elected. I think it's easier if you've been there already, like a Helen Haynes or a Zali Stegall. If you've just arrived, I think that's a tougher call. So, you know, an Allegra Spender, for example, or possibly even Cheney, if she gets in over in WA, really any of these Teal independents, other than perhaps Zoe Daniel, I'm not sure that in Goldstein she would back the coalition. I think she'd be more likely to back Labor. I just think one of them, you can probably assume, is a chance of going with the coalition. Now, the reason I go through those numbers is because that way you can drop the coalition vote in the parliament or the number of seats to 73 and still see them get elected. And one of the factors that's relevant when that happens, I was talking to a senior minister actually about this just yesterday, it's not just that 73 might therefore get them there, or even 72 if I'm wrong and if they can pick up, you know, as you say, Helen Haynes or someone like that. It's, it's how they look compared to Labor. As long as they have equal or more seats than Labor, I think the coalition can get there by cobbling together a few independents. If Labor has more seats than the coalition, I think they get there, and it's possible that they get there anyway because of having fewer seats, but locking in more of the crossbench. And you mentioned Wilkie as well as Bant. Those are essentially guaranteed votes, as you know, for, for the Labor Party, particularly, well, both of them really. But Anthony Albanese won't do any deals with Adam Bant and the Greens, because he will be thinking about how it forms government. So he will just assume Adam Bant will support him. He won't enter any sort of deal with him for the optics of not doing a deal with the Greens after what happened in 2010. And he will dare Adam Bant to support a Morrison government instead. So he knows he's got the green vote in the electorate of Melbourne. So, you know, I mean, we could end up with a scenario where I haven't done the exact maths on which independents and crossbenchers sit there, but you could very easily have both parties in the low 70s trying to work their way to 76. Boy, that's complicated. I'm not a critic of that, by the way. I know that the major parties like to say, oh, it'll be chaos if it's a hung parliament. I, I, I'm okay about a hung parliament. I mean, as a political scientist, I quite like it. As a commentator, I think it'll be interesting. But I also just think it's, I, I think it's a misnomer from major parties that you need to have a majority government to have stable government. I, I don't necessarily agree with that. Well, they're arguing their book, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Now, look, we've, I, want to, I want to talk about so many things. There's the big elbow speech. There was the, uh, the great 
image of Scott Morrison steamrolling the kid and Brandon in Tasmania. We'll get to that. But uh, I, we spoke right at the beginning of the campaign that what will really count is looking at where these leaders are in the final days of the campaign. I noted that Scott Morrison has been in Karangamite. That's on Labour held by about 1%. Is that because he thinks he can win that seat? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I mean, yeah, at one level, there's the optics of trying to have a bandwagon effect and look like you're still well and truly in the hunt, potentially at play. But I, I just don't think he'd be in Karangamite if he didn't think he was a, a crack and a chance at winning it. And that's the thing that makes me nervous about predicting a Labor victory, to be honest. The Prime Minister, right up until the end, has been visiting these seats that Labor holds, which I can't imagine is pure bravado. I, there has to be some belief structure within them that they can win these seats, even if they end up falling short. It'll be a surprise to me, Hugh, when we're on air on the night, if they lose an electorate like Karangamite with a hefty margin, because then I would look at it and think, well, why the hell did he keep going there? They must have known that that margin was wide. Well, one argument I think Labor uses to comfort itself is that there are airports close by, including Avalon Airport, so he can drop his plane in. He can't go into Melbourne because he's on the nose in Melbourne, the city proper. So he goes down to the Bellarine Peninsula, Geelong, based the surf coast seat and he can be seen to be in victoria without necessarily having having paint chucked at him or whatever it is it's a good point actually but at the same time albanese off to fowler have to pay a visit to christina Keneally, the blow-in if you like from from the pit water who's been given this bizarre task of of winning this heartland multicultural old-style labor seat because she wasn't considered good enough by the party to be up in a winnable position on the Senate. Yeah, ticket. look, it's such it's such a mess, Hugh. I mean, this is not a mess of Christina Keneally's making. This is a factional mess. So Deb O'Neill held the winnable spot in the Senate, forcing Christina Keneally to therefore make the decision to move into the electorate of Fowler with the vacating seat with the, the member leaving or retiring. And it was a right-wing seat, so therefore she could move in there. Now, what happened was the shoppies who support the Shroppies Union, who support Deb O'Neill, the more conservative wing of the Labor Union structure, they put their foot down because it was their seat in the Senate. And so they had a right, even though Christina Keneally was the Deputy Senate Leader and the more senior person in Shadow Cabinet, Deb O'Neill is, I think, only a junior parsec role. They asserted their authority, the Shoppies. Deb O'Neill held the line and held the position in the winnable spot. And that left Christina Keneally to have to find a new home and the right, which control the seat of Fowler, decided to parachute her in there. And that's caused all sorts of problems, of course, because she's not a local. There's now an independent running. You've got the prime minister-to-be if he wins, uh, the wannabe prime minister, uh, Anthony Albanese, visiting the seat. That was also partly because of the nature of the community event last night, but it is still nonetheless a decision that was made to be in Fowler. Christina Kinley flew to Canberra for the National Press Club address by Anthony Albanese and presumably was on the same plane back with him into her electorate. It tells us that you know, that it's close, there's going to be a swing against Labor. It's just whether it's big enough to unseat her. That would be diabolical for her. And it is a mess. And she is a blow-in. But, you know, if you like, she was pushed into becoming a blow-in as a result of the factional deal done. An absolute mess. They would have been better off, frankly. As I understand it, originally, Deb O'Neill got the Senate spot through the shoppies after she lost her lower house seat. I can't remember which one it was out of Dobell and Robertson. She lost. It must actually it must have been Robertson because that's now held by the Liberals. The original deal, as I understand it, was that she was going to sit in the Senate until the time came to recontest that seat because that was where she could really add some some oomph as a former local member with the name recognition and go back to 
holding the marginal. Now, again, this is not a criticism of her because I don't know the exact dealings behind the scenes, but you know, for whatever reason, the faction, probably with her urging, decided to put its foot down. And why not, if you're her? Much better to have an unlosable spot on the Senate ticket than try to have a crack at winning back a tough marginal seat on the Central Coast. Sorry to interrupt you, but it does go... Much has been said about uh, Scott Morrison's captain's picks, Catherine Deves, even the fact that there was the support for Craig Kelly back in the day, and uh, you could take any number you like. But at least a captain's pick, you know who the captain is. Yeah. This sort of Senate ticket pick, which has resulted in this potential disaster for Labour and certainly distracting Albanese just minutes before the uh, election vote. It's not a captain's pick. It is the classic faceless men's pick. Yeah. You know, I don't know if people are sufficiently into it to, you know, to read or care about such things. But I've got to say, it does seem as if, you know, there are aspects of the Labour Party factional processes which do make you smack your palm to your face. It's the same as the choices for the front bench, right? The factions decide. The factions get allocations of front bench positions, the left and the right, and then the factions meet, decide who among them are going to be shadow ministers uh, or ministers. It's the same in government. And then the prime minister gets given the list. And they can tend to exert a little bit of authority at different points in time to maybe get a captain's pick or two uh, in defiance of the factional structure. And then the rest works itself around it like an amoeba. But for the most part, they just get told, this is your team. And it is now your job to allocate portfolios. And so the, the prime minister or the opposition leader get, gets to then allocate the portfolios. But amongst a team that has been selected for him or her by factional elders, and it, it's, it gets more complicated than that, Hugh, because it's not, ju- it's not just the right and the left. It's then state by state. And it's, it's just, you know, it's crazy. Yes, and male and female and stuff, and, and and they don't always get to elect the portfolios. Bob Hawke famously wanted as first treasurer Ralph Willis. Yeah. The factions got together and said, no, you can have Paul Keating instead, and the rest is history. Welcome back. Uh, it is, I've been counting on my fingers and toes, episode 120 of The Professor and the Hack. I thought it was 121. No, uh, is it? It is 121. <laughs> the fix is in. Oh, my God. I, I'm, I'm nicknaming you. I'm nicknaming you week one elbow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear me. It is episode. Well, they don't call me the hack, Hugh Rimmington, uh, for nothing. And there I am hacking away. I think it's the one time I knew the episode. Only because you told me at the start of it. Can, can I just tell you that that then qualifies as a gaffe? <laughs> but Albanese, who started this election campaign with a gaffe, on your view, covered himself in glory at the National Press Club speech. What was it that impressed you so much about it? Yeah, well, I described it in my story that night as the best performance I'd seen in 15 years of covering politics at the National Press Club. That's how impressed I was. And the only caveat I guess I should probably put on that is that there's you know the difference between the ones you watch in the room versus the ones you watch on TV. Maybe being there uh, had an impact. If people who, are, who watched it at home and are listening to us now have a very different view, maybe that's a factor. But in the room, Hugh, what impressed me about it was his, his oratory was very good. I liked the issues that he delved into. I liked the emotion at times, not overcooked, but at times when he was talking about the kind of prime minister he wants to be and the issues he wants to lead on. And he, he didn't just serve up, if you like, you know, the sort of meat and three veggies that he needs to serve up to get the prime ministership, but he did also do a little bit of that, which is important strategically, but 
He then also delved into things like the voice to parliament and, and was quite emotional at times about the things that really are passionate to him. He talked about his background in a way that was better than he's done before. It sounded a little stage managed at times in the past. This time it sounded genuine, which I know it is, but delivered in a really good way. And then the last part that I liked about it, he had some good lines, including with humor, attacking Scott Morrison. So he didn't just sound like he was carping. He also took the mickey out of him in a way that made you stop and think. Ultimately, the thing that capped it off with me being so positive about it, and also the contrast of it, the fact that he's doing it, whereas Scott Morrison hasn't turned up for the National Press Club for the last week of the campaign, that of itself is a factor. But the thing that really delivered it as, as a strong performance to me, to the extent that I was as praiseworthy as I was, was also hearing him in the Q&A. So the, the set speech was very good, but it's a set speech. The Q&A, the questions that he was copying from journalists, not always easy. You know, um, I, I was somewhat brutal in my question. Andrew Clonell from Sky was very brutal in his question. He threw it back at us in a way that was answering the question effectively as opposed to just throwing it back in your face aggressively, which might not you know, satisfy everyone. He, he tended to answer the questions. A couple of journalistic questions where he managed to half answer and they tried to push him a bit further and, and we moved on. But the Q&A performance was going with a good speech was, was why I thought it was such an impressive performance. Interesting. Do you think he now is gaff-proof to the finish line in the sense that wherever it's got to, there's not enough time for the government to, um, this goes both ways to a certain degree, to really take advantage of any minor errors and sort of optical errors as opposed to if they suddenly came out and announced that they were going to end the pension. Do you think at this stage there's not much more to be done other than to shake hands everywhere you can? Well, the electronic media blackout is now in place. What is it, 48 hours before polling day? So there's a lot more online advertising that can be done and the newspaper advertising, I believe, can continue. So those avenues are there. But the electronic media in campaigns is traditionally, and even in the age we're in, the new media age we're in now, it is seen as vitally important and that's now gone. So the ability to grab a gaffe and accentuate it and amplify it is reduced as a result of that media blackout. But I don't think it's too late. I think it's it's hard to stuff up this late or harder. But you know the, the, the question marks around costings, for example, and the afterplay of that is something that is a risk if you're in the Anthony Albanese camp, I would have thought. So that's that that would probably be the biggest avenue to a gaff, I would suggest, which could then, with what means are still available, be amplified and do him harm ahead of polling day. But of course, as you know, um, you know, I think it's already 6 million people have already voted, more than most, more than usual at elections, and it's a growing number from election to election generally. But I think they tend to be the, as a truism, they tend to be the decided voters anyway. So both major party leaders are traversing the country, making their pitch to those undecided voters, uh, because there is still a decent swag in them. There's some new polling coming out, which the Crescent Institute has commissioned through essential polling. And full disclosure, I'm on the board of the Crescent Institute. One of the things which was interesting is that 46% of those polled believe the country is more divided than it was three years ago at the last election. You think 46, that's not so much, but only 8% think the country is less divided. So the trend line there is there is a sense among people, particularly men, particularly those over 55, who are of the view that the country is becoming more divided. You'd need sociological degrees to really try to unpick where that comes from. But I do 
feel as if there's a little bit of an echo of what I saw in the United States in that one of the things from all sides is that people felt the world was coming uh, more divided. A, a secondary question was, who do you blame? Social media, traditional media, state governments, federal governments. The blame has largely landing at the feet of the federal government. So that sense that we've been a divided country increasingly over this term of the Morrison government, I think is significant. And whoever wins, whether it's Morrison or Albanese, one of the tasks, a difficult task, it would strike me, is the need to somehow bind the country again to a certain degree. Yeah, and I, look, I don't necessarily see either leader, but probably particularly Morrison, being able to do that. I can see Albanese trying. Uh, I'm not sure that Morrison would be inclined to try, uh, despite the rhetoric about I can change and I'll have to change after the election. I think a Morrison victory would represent, in a sense, a two-finger salute to a particular cohort of people who have been very unimpressed by him. And I think that it would accentuate the divisions rather than help heal. I think Albanese would have a better chance of healing. And that's not necessarily, it is a criticism of Morrison, but it's also just a reality of what happens when there's a change of government. The opportunity to heal when a period of time has been particularly divisive is by definition greater when you change the government than when you just re-elect the people and the person who presided over the period of great division, you know, because the way that you get people back in the tent is by cleaning the slate and starting again. And a new government can always find that easier to do, I think. Let's go to optics. Um, Scott Morrison bulldozing the child at Braddon in Tasmania as he went for a vote playing football. It's now everywhere. <laughs> I have to say it reminded me a great deal of a picture of Boris Johnson, who bulldozed a child when playing rugby. Very much the same. Big bloke in his shirt, cannoning it into a kid and knocking him over. I would say Google up the Boris Johnson hits child vision, run it against the other one. <laughs> Didn't stop Boris Johnson getting elected, mind you. Do you think even images like that make a blind bit of difference? Uh, look, I'll defend him on this. And, and I know you're not attacking him on it. You know it was an accident, obviously. But he's you know, understandably, to some extent, getting mocked for it. It's getting a play. And then there are some people who are actually outraged by it. I'm sure you're not either, but I'm, I'm absolutely not. It's just an accident. you know. And, and the way that he dealt with it, for what it's worth, the reason I, I mean, and I understand that it gets played and I'll probably play it on the news tonight. But I understand the play it gets, particularly after he's described himself as a bulldozer, the, you know, knocking the kid over. But if you look at the image of it, apart from the fact that it's just an accident, simple as that, you know, he didn't see the kid to his left, he was looking at the ball to his right, then ran into the kid. Apart from the fact that it's just an accident and these things happen, I actually also thought the way that he handled it from the, like, just, and this is pure instinct in the moment, as he hit the kid, you can see on the still image from behind the child, he had one hand out to, to take the fall on the ground to try to protect the child. And he had the other hand behind the kid's back, again, to try to protect the child. And that is a, a, just a pure moment of instinct. You know, he's a father, he's a human being. It was an accident. And as soon as he realized that he'd accidentally collected this kid that would have weighed a fraction of him, he had that hand out and that arm around the kid trying to minimize the impact of it. Not as a calculation just as a human being. So, you know, yep, it'll get a play. Why not? Probably should as well after the bulldozer comment. It's funny because no one was hurt. It's, you know, probably not a good optics for him in, in, in that superficial sense, but it's an out and out accident. And, you know, he handled it instinctually the way that you would want him to handle it on that occasion. Yeah, I've got no argument with that at all. The, the other thing about it is that there's an argument that says if you're interesting in the picture, you've won the picture. 
and, and this does go to something which is Morrison's campaign strength, is all that stuff easily mocked of him welding and fusing his eyeballs out or doing other things. <laughs> Albanese doesn't do any of that. He'll walk up and down in high-vis. He doesn't engage in those games. He'll sit down and have a cup of tea and, and eat some cakes with some people when he wants to talk about uh, you know, aged care and so on. He doesn't go for the picture opportunity. That protects him from a whole bunch of unscripted moments like that, but it also deprives him of the opportunity for unscripted moments. Mm. And um, I think overall, as a net benefit process, that has worked very well over his time, whether he wins or loses on Saturday, uh, for Morrison to throw himself into those things. I, I understand there's a cohort of people for whom this play acting of the, of the alpha male, essentially the conservative who's in blue-collar jobs, seems dishonest and also could alienate women voters who don't see anything to identify with in that particular landscape that they see in front of him. But uh, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll know. It'll it is be. a contrast, though. You're right. And, and the, the, the person that I would bring into that contrast is Malcolm Turnbull on the campaign trail in 2016, because he was, much, he, well, he was more like Albo in this campaign than Morrison in the way that he does all these picture opportunities but where Albanese is better than Turnbull. I think even though Albanese is much more limited and doesn't do all the sort of silly stuff that Morrison gets in on, he comes across very genuine when listening to people and when having those coffee catch-ups or the cake or the sort of interactions with the baby when he's talking childcare with the mother or something like that. He has a real aura of genuineness about him, whereas Malcolm Turnbull was very stiff and, you know, sort of presidential in a way, which, you know, is sort of authoritative in a way, but distant as a consequence. And that's not actually his personality in, in sort of private, but that's certainly the way he came across. You know, he thinks it's all just bullshit, you know. <laughs> so he sort of, and, 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 and he couldn't hide uh, that coming across uh, at every stage, which really, Hugh, I mean, yeah, we're not going to talk about this, but oh my God, when, you, when that's your leader, that's who's your leader, and that's the reality of who they are for better or worse. Who calls an eight-week campaign? <laughs> you know, that's, that's what this 2016, it was eight weeks of Malcolm Turnbull looking down through his nose at everybody he met day in, day out. It was not, it was not, a, not a winning formula. <laughs> no. Well, we don't know yet who's got the winning formula for this one, but just to wrap it up, what's your call? Oh, look, it, I will be surprised if Scott Morrison manages to orchestrate Miracle 2 and hold majority government, and I think most people will be. I wouldn't say it's completely off the table because he is still visiting seats that could make it happen, but I will be surprised. I think that the most likely scenario is a Labor government, and probably the most likely scenario of what type of Labor government is a minority Labor government rather than majority. But I certainly won't be surprised if there's a Labor majority as well. The one roughy, and I know I'm covering every option here so that uh, I don't get mocked, but it's also just because I, this is how uncertain it is. I, I don't think a minority Liberal government is off the table. There is a pathway there for them. It's whether they can sandbag enough seats for their seat total to be at a minimum of 73 or 74 to be able to cobble together that minority government. So I've given every option there. If you forced me here to pick one, uh, at this point, I would say minority Labor government. Mm. And it all depends on those percentage, probably seven odd percent, who really, even as we speak, haven't got a clue what they're going to do in that room. And I've been saying this whole term that I think that Scott Morrison will be re-elected through the pandemic, in the book that Wayne and I wrote about it, you know, sort of Labor people have been begging me not to say differently because, you know, uh, they, they don't want the hex uh, put on them. Uh, they regard me as the kiss of death. So in a sense, I'm sort of sticking to that until it doesn't happen. 
but I'm now sort of thinking I'm going to be proven wrong for my nearly three years worth of consistently saying Morrison will find a way to win. At this last minute with 48 hours to go, I'm looking at it going, oh, you know, it's, it's hard to see it, but I won't be surprised if we're sitting there, Hugh, on Saturday night and suddenly the unthinkable has happened again and Scott Morrison has orchestrated another miracle. I won't be blown away by it. It just is the less likely scenario at this stage. Yeah, I, look, I certainly wouldn't be blown away if we're there very late at night watching numbers coming in from Western Australia to see how that might land to uh, affect the outcome and, and then looking at the counting of the postal votes and the could go for a couple of days still to come. There's so much more I want to ask you about. This whole notion of Albanese and Wong heading off to the quad and what happens, leaving no government behind, which that, that will... It seemed like a thought bubble. But we, we, we can do it. We can do it in our first podcast post the election when we know who is or isn't going, or maybe we won't know, but that, that'll be interesting in and of itself, won't it, if we're all sitting there waiting for more votes to be counted and deals to be done because that's how close the thing ended up being. Who knows? Yes, indeed. So, dear listener, vote early, vote often, as they used to say. And, and we'll see you on the other side. Peter Van Onselen, I will be joining you on the Channel 10 desk for the election coverage as those numbers come in. What a night that'll be. We'll see you then. We're going to all be confused, Hugh, sitting there going, who the hell knows what's happened? Is my, that's my best prediction. No, not at all. We'll be right across it. <laughs> Talk to you soon, Peter. See you, mate. been listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.